0: Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. We're going to be reading through verse 13 this evening. I had originally planned on stopping at verse 12 and leaving the rest of the passage for next week. Uh, And we are going to look at verse 13 next week. But I thought by including it in tonight's passage, it would give you a clearer idea of what is going on. This, after all, was intended... Uh, not in 12-verse chunks, but really you want to read all of chapter 20, all of chapter 21, and chapter 22 together. They fit as a coherent whole. First Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, but not him who straps on his armor, boast himself like he, who takes it off. When ben Benhadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, "Take your positions." And they took their positions against the city. And behold, the prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, "Thus says the Lord." Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the Epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 3. We'll be reading through verse 17 this evening. nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated... Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here ends the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 20. Beginning at verse 1, is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy And I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Uh, That's what the Lord says to Moses. Now, in the original context, the Lord had rebuked Israel and he had told Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. If I were to go up with them, I would consume them in a moment. But the Lord pled with, I mean, Moses pled with the Lord to have mercy, mercy on all the people, and the Lord declared instead that he is a God of sovereign grace, he would have mercy upon whom he chose to have mercy, not upon whom Moses suggested that he should. More than a dozen centuries later, the Apostle Paul would make clear that the Lord's words to Moses are actually a broad principle that we can apply to the salvation of anybody and to all of history. And it leads to a very important truth to remind ourselves of. If we ever find ourselves thinking that God ought to be more merciful than we imagine him to be, we ought to put our hands over our mouths. Uh, we're, we're completely out of, out of bounds when we think like that. Uh, for one thing, nobody is ever owed mercy. Mercy, by definition, is unmerited. Secondly, we should remind ourselves that we are just kidding ourselves to imagine that we would be more merciful than God. We're gonna see that in tonight's passage as well, but surely you see that in your own lives. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, not for good people, but for his enemies. Tonight we come to two ancient kings who are about to go to war against one another. We have already met Ahab, the king of Israel, Uh, But ask yourself, what sort of king was Ahab? And I think we can put it like this. There is no Christian and there is no Jewish parent who would ever consider naming their son after this wicked king. In fact, he is the most wicked king in the entire history of Israel. He is the one who first introduces Baal worship into Israel, And at the very least, he tolerates, he allows, he facilitates his wife Jezebel killing the Lord's prophets. And even after God has powerfully vindicated Elijah on Mount Carmel, right before Ahab's eyes, Ahab is allowing Jezebel to pursue Elijah for his life. In this evening's passage, Ahab is in an obvious world of trouble. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, has come to Israel with a vast army. He's beginning to besiege Samaria, and he is demanding that Ahab make dramatic and humiliating concessions as a vassal king. So ask yourself, who is going to prevail? Ahab or Ben-Hadad? Well, it turns out we know something, but neither of these kings knew. God has already told Elijah to ordain their successors. Both of these men are very soon going to be called to account for their lives. No matter how this battle turns out, they're very close to the end. Verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Now historians get all wrapped up at this point because there are at least two Ben-Hadads, and it's very likely that there were at least three. And so they try to identify which Ben-Hadad we're talking about. The truth is, is for our purposes this evening, it just doesn't matter. The things that are important are right on the surface of the text. Ben-Hadad, has a vast army he has the weapons of war he has horses and chariots he's got 32 vassal kings with him and he's coming with a force that israel cannot possibly hope in their own power to resist and secondly benhadad is bent on humiliating king ahab if you're just a person in israel you might not care that much about it but you do care about the fact that Ben Haddad intends to make Israel a vassal state, and that he may, in fact, run through the state and steal all of your wealth. Well, who were these 32 kings who were bringing troops to fight on Ben Haddad's behalf? Uh, actually, calling them kings is a little bit too grandiose. I mean, some people have tried mayors, but mayors doesn't really work. But what you want to think is, is they're the heads of small cities or uh, perhaps slightly larger regions. You might want to think of them as heads of tribes. And they're in a relationship with Ben-Hadad where he's the big king and they're the little king, the little war. Uh, That's called a suzerain-vassal relationship. And the way suzerain-vassal relationships work is the great king would promise the lesser kings, hey, I'm going to protect you. You know, you're not really very significant, but if someone comes against you, I'll use my force and protect you. And I'm also going to open you up to trading with all the vassal kings who are under me. It'll be good for your economy. And what you need to do in in, uh, place of that is you need to pledge your loyalty to me. You need to send me a monetary gift. I mean, not necessarily coins. I mean, they might send sheep and wine or timber and various other things, but some sort of tribute. And when I go to war, you also have to send me some troops. And that's what they're doing right here. He's planning on going to war against Israel, and he has 32 vassal rulers under him, and they actually come out to battle, and each of them brings some of their own troops. Now, although these lesser kings are not particularly important by themselves, when you lump 32 of their little armies together, you get a really big force. Quite simply, Ahab is in trouble. Even in the best of times, Ahab would have found it almost impossible to mount a defense against such an enormous army. But you all recall, this is not the best of times. Israel has just gone through three and a half years of a backbreaking and brutal famine. Israel is devastated. You know, early on, um, when Elijah comes back, or late on in the famine, when Elijah's coming back to Israel, one of the things we see is that um, the king had gone out with his most trusted servant, and they're looking for just a little water to try to save some of the horses. They are by no means prepared to resist such a great army. Humanly speaking, the situation in Israel appears to be hopeless. Verses 2-4 through And Ben-Hadad sent messengers into the city to King Ahab of Israel and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. The king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Well, we got to unpack this a little bit because uh, we don't talk like this. And in the ancient Near East, everybody would have understood this is sort of conventional language. For a lesser king to say that everything I have is yours did not mean he just handed it over to him. He's a way of saying, I'll be your vassal, right? Just like these other 32 kings. And so what Ben-Hadad was doing when he came near is he was telling Israel, you've been independent long enough. You know, David, Solomon, the house of Omri, now we're down to you. And you're gonna be a vassal state to me. As I say, nobody in the ancient Near East would have taken this language in a wooden way to mean that Ahab would need to literally send Ben-Hadad all of his best wives, his children, and all of Israel's silver and gold. Rather, Ahab would become like the other vassals who would send Ben-Hadad monetary tribute every year, and also troops when uh, Ben-Hadad needed him for battle. As humiliating as becoming a vassal king would be, Ahab agrees to Ben-Hadad's demands. Agrees to his terms. So you want to pause and ask yourself, why would he do that? Why would Ahab say, I'm willing to become a vassal? I think Walter Meyer puts it very well. He writes, Ahab did so because of his position of weakness, because of his desire to save his throne, and because he hoped to spare Samaria from a siege and possible destruction. Further, he would retain some control in the paying of Ben-Hadad's price. Ahab thought quite reasonably, but although he would send silver and gold to the Aramean, he could avoid emptying out completely his treasuries, and that he would have some degree of choice as to which and how many of his wives and children he would hand over to Ben-Hadad if he wanted any of them. Moreover, he would not surrender Samaria and in essence the northern kingdom to the Aramean king. There was a considerable difference between being a vassal king and the monarchy of the northern kingdom coming to an end, with that kingdom losing all independence and being totally incorporated into the Aramean Empire. Now, a godly king would have cried out to Yahweh, right? A godly king would have called for the prophets and the priests and consulted them about what to do have called the people to fast perhaps and certainly to plead with the Lord to deliver them but Ahab is not a godly king in fact he's a crass idolater he's an idol worshiper still from a human point of view Ahab's interpretation of Ben Hadad's intent and his pragmatic decision to accept vassal status actually makes perfectly good sense the whole suzerain vassal relationship worked because wise suzerains did not squeeze their vassals too hard, right? In fact, wise suzerains would frequently make gifts to their vassals. They they would publicly honor their vassals, trying to build up their local prestige, and they would give them gifts to try to say, this is a good deal for you, to maintain the long-term loyalty that they needed. In fact, the big kings would... um, sometimes be quite lavish in the public honors that they would give because they weren't going to leave an army there to occupy Israel. They wanted Israel to voluntarily serve as their vassal. This is where we discover that Ben-Hadad was a drunken madman. I'll say that again because this is very strong language I'm using, but I think it's important to grasp just how, to, how out of control Ben-Hadad is we discover that Ben-Hadad was a drunken madman. Look at verses five and six with me. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow, about this time, and they shall search your house in the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. See, instead of that normal give and take of a suzerain vassal relationship, Ben and Dad is going to completely humiliate Ahab. And that's crazy. Because you have to realize that even if he can pull it off, it's bad. I mean, what's he going to do two, three, four years from now? If you humiliate Ahab as a vassal like this, and you don't completely take him out of power, uh, you could expect that the first opportunity Ahab has, he's gonna seek revenge. His children are gonna seek revenge. His grandchildren are gonna seek revenge. This is not the way to build up a healthy relationship with someone who's gonna keep sending you tribute for decades to come. Benathad's goal is to completely humiliate Ahab, to take away whatever he finds valuable. Please mark that phrase here. He he doesn't say, I'm going to send my servants and they're going to take what is valuable in their eyes, the best things that they can get their hands on and bring it back. They're going to go into your house and they're going to pay attention to what you find valuable and they're going to take everything you find valuable for you just to rub your nose in my superior position. As I say, this is a policy of a drunken madman. Even if he has the power to pull it off, he will be cultivating deep-seated resentments instead of loyalty. Uh, To see how a relationship can get so toxic that it's almost impossible to fix, all you have to do is look around the world. The obvious place to look right now is Palestine and Israel. I mean, if any of you have a really good solution to how to bring about peace there, you ought to share it, but no one else can come up with it. Because once you have enough ingrained hatred of people against each other, and the total breakdown of trust, all you really do is move from a different group of people hating a different group of people because of our fathers and our fathers before them. At the very best, this is going to be a disaster for ben Haddad rather than a long-term victory. Now at this point, it is reasonable for us to wonder, if the Lord is simply bringing both kings into judgment. Uh, After all, Ben-Hadad, everything we know about him, is really a horrible pagan king. He's out getting drunk with the other kings while sending people into battle. He's totally uh, about uh, uh, satisfying his own ego. He's not concerned that this might cause the lives of his own men or the lives of the Israelites or what the long-term consequences are going to be. He's a rotten, self-absorbed pagan king. And on the other hand, there's Ahab, who's introduced Baal worship in Israel and who refuses to repent even when God demonstrates right before his eyes that he is the true God and Elijah is his prophet. And so, as I say, it's quite reasonable for us to wonder if the Lord is simply bringing both kings into judgment a judgment that they so fully reserve. Um, might be helpful to consider a remarkable contrast in the ancient world to Ben-Hadad, and I'm thinking in particular of Cyrus the Great, who's one of the few rulers called the Great who really deserves that title. Normally we give the title of the Great to, to military conquerors uh, because we forgot about all the blood they shed. But Cyrus the Great does a remarkable set of things, and one of them we know him for, of course, is he sets... The Israel free and says, You may return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. In fact, I'll give you some material aid in doing that. But it turns out he did not just do that for the Jews. Before he came to power, there had been people dispossessed all over his empire. And what he largely does is says, I grant you freedom, a large degree of religious freedom, right? I, I want you to live fruitful and productive lives. And you know what happens to Cyrus? People like him. I mean, nobody goes around while Cyrus is the ruler in Persia thinking, well, except a few people in his own household, but I mean, if you're Jewish or you're some other nation that's been conquered, nobody is going around thinking, boy, life would be so much better if we could just get rid of Cyrus. ben Haddad's the polar opposite. Cyrus is the good pagan king. ben Haddad is a model of a horrible pagan king. A model of a foolish ruler Or as i have put it a drunken madman so why would the god of abraham isaac and jacob providentially bring about such a brutal threat to ahab and to his kingdom and we're never told so we cannot give a definitive answer to that question nevertheless it isn't much of a stretch to suggest But the Lord was chastising both Ahab and Israel for their crass idolatry. Furthermore, the Lord was punishing and pushing Ahab beyond the limits of what Israel's king could handle. That is something that God does in our lives sometimes for our own good. This was not a situation that Ahab could manage his way out of. So first, he's chastising the people, chastising the king. But secondly, he's pushing Ahab Beyond his ability to handle the situation, leaving Ahab only one choice, which is to turn back to the living God. Now, at this point, the king of Israel wanted to consult with all the elders of the land before sending back his answer. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now, and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Uh, Ahab is, in in effect, saying to the the elders of the people, look how reasonable I've been. I was willing to bend over backwards to avoid war and bloodshed, but what can I do? And the elders agree with him. Uh, They probably realized that to give in to Ben-Hadad's demands would mean the end of Israel as a nation. Right. This was not simply a temporary monetary loss or a humiliation, that giving in to Ben-Hadad with the second set of demands that he makes would be the end of their nation. Furthermore, if Ben-Hadad's going to despoil the wealth of, of Ahab, surely he's going to be quite happy to despoil their wealth as, as, and their wives as well. Uh, so I think that might be part of it. Uh, but it's also possible that the elders are simply made of sterner stuff than their king, and they were more than willing to fight to protect their way of life. We should remember that Ahab is actually a remarkably soft man, particularly for someone who's going to be a ruler of a people. Uh, As we see um, Ahab throughout this whole narrative in 1 Kings, what we find is is he simply just keeps giving in to Jezebel. He's rarely the driver of any issues, even when he uh, confronts Elijah, who he's been looking for, and he calls him the trouble of Israel, he actually does everything Elijah says. And after he witnesses Elijah being vindicated on Mount Carmel, you've got to think he wants to go back and tell Jezebel, at least partly, can't believe what Yahweh did. He still acquiesces to Jezebel. When we turn over to the next chapter, we're going to see one of those really sad scenes in his life. Um, Ahab is, you know, he's king, and he looks at the Vineyard of his neighbor Naboth, and he goes, I want that. He goes and tries to buy it from him. And Naboth goes, Well, I'm not going to sell this land. This is my, my, my family heritage. Remember what Ahab does? He pouts. He just goes around sullen. It's Jezebel who has Naboth killed. And after he's killed, Ahab's quite happy to take possession of the land but he's not a man of decisive action himself. So it may simply be that the elders were stronger leaders than their rather soft king. Perhaps combining his elders' resolve with his own instinctive softness, Ahab sends back a remarkably polite refusal. I mean, after all, that this second request that has come in from Ben-Hadad is just brutal. He's rubbing... Ahab's nose in it and Ahab sends back this very polite refusal he continues to call Ben-Hadad my lord the king he reiterates his willingness to be his vassal and to fully accept the initial demands that Ben-Hadad had made perhaps the Syrian king would sober up either physically or metaphorically and they would be able to develop at least a tolerable working relationship Um, Such was not to be. To put it mildly, Ben-Hadad was not amused. Uh, John Woodhouse suggests, I doubt that Ben-Hadad was surprised. His utterly unreasonable demand had been calculated to be impossible for Ahab to accept. It provided him with the perfect pretext to do what he had planned all along. Now that's a perfectly plausible explanation that ben Haddad's plan all along had been to go to war against Israel. But I'm not entirely convinced because everything we know about ben Haddad tells us this is an irrational dude. As I mentioned this morning, sin and hatred is irrational and it also causes us to act irrationally. And, And at least to me, it seems like he might be winging it. He's out there having drinking parties with these other rulers and he's going, let me show you, I'm the man. And so I don't necessarily know that he has such a long-term plan in mind. I believe he might be flying by the seat of his pants. Either way, this does not look great for Israel. Look at verse 10 with me. Then sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also, sounds a lot like Jezebel, by the way, the, this, this vow in the name of the pagan gods. The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. See, the Syrian king is threatening to reduce Samaria to dust. But By the way, um, a very important rule of thumb if you're ever going to be a suzerain someday you don't want to reduce the people that are supposed to pay you tribute to dust. But he said, I'm going to reduce the entire city of Samaria to dust, and it's going to be so devastated that the troops behind me, each one of them is not going to to get a handful of the remnants that's left over of the city. Verse 11. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. For a very brief moment, Ahab's spine seems to have stiffened. Or perhaps it's just a little bit of braggadocia, given that he doesn't have any choice and conflict cannot possibly be avoided. I confess that I've loved this particular line before I even understood the story. More than forty years ago, when I first heard this, I thought that is a great line, but not he who puts his armor on, boasts like he who takes it off. That's good advice. I was doing sports. It's good advice for a football player, but it's actually pretty good advice for life as well. It's one of those truisms that is true. Nevertheless, we are left wondering how Ahab can possibly back up his words. Verse 12, when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. We're going to see this problem play out through the rest of the chapter. Don't feel sorry for ben but he is a drunken madman. The Syrian king has been drinking on the job and acting extremely foolishly. But this brings us to two critical questions we need to ask to understand what this portion of God's word is actually doing. And I mean by that, uh, this portion, chapter 20 as a whole. First, which king deserves to win? You got Ben Hadad, you got Ahab. Which king deserves to win? The answer is obvious neither. Right? If they both lose, we have, God brings about some kind of disaster where they, they both get wiped out. All we're going to say is justice has finally been done. Neither of them deserve to win. Second, which king deserves the condemnation of Almighty God? Once again, the answer is obvious. They both do. Everything that we have seen of Ben-Hadad, and certainly what we're going to see after this, shouts that he is a horrible pagan king his decisions are both rash and foolish they take no regard for his own people and instead of taking responsibility, the responsibilities that he has seriously ben hadad is making life and death decisions while drinking with his subordinate kings i mean what could possibly go wrong on the other hand there is ahab ahab is introduced Baal worship in israel He has at least tolerated Jezebel when she murdered the Lord's prophets. Furthermore, Ahab is an adversary to Elijah, the one absolutely clear and validated spokesman for Almighty God. If Almighty God were to crush both kings in some dramatic manner, the only thing that could be said is that they received what they deserved. Justice has finally been dealt out, but that is not what the Lord does at least not yet. Verse 13. And behold, the prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. We could have introduced tonight's passage by saying, well, Elijah was away at Mount Sinai, and then with Elisha, you know, dot, 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 right? This this is a time when Elijah's away from Ahab here. And yet Elijah being away does not mean that the Lord has nobody to bring Ahab a message. An unnamed prophet, perhaps one of those who had previously been hidden in a cave, comes to Ahab with a most surprising message. He begins... Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Now twice Ahab has received messengers from Ben-Hadad who said, Thus says Ben-Hadad. The prophet is coming and saying, you can forget about that. That doesn't matter. Here's what matters. Thus says the Lord. And yet at first blush, this isn't very good news. Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? And Ahab must have thought, seen them. I wish I could stop seeing them. My thoughts are consumed with this vast army, but is about to devastate Samaria, and perhaps take my own life as well. And yet I do wonder if just for a fleeting moment Ahab had thought, you know what, I'm getting what I deserve. The Lord had revealed himself so clearly to me on Mount Carmel, and then he graciously sent rain on the land, and I still did not turn back to him. Surely this must be what the prophet has come to tell me. I have sown to the wind, and I am reaping the whirlwind. But God's prophet continues, Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know, That I am the Lord. Beloved, the news is absolutely extraordinary. The Lord was entering into the battle on behalf of Israel, and if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? But why in the world would the Lord do this? Two things. First, the Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. By delivering evil King Ahab, the worst king in the entire history of Israel, the Lord was erecting a monument to his own gracious character. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Some of the notorious sinners in the Bible, think for example the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul ravaging the church, He actually says that one of the reasons why God converted him was precisely to be a monument to his grace. If God could save someone as wicked as Saul, surely his grace is sufficient for you. And second, the prophet declares on God's behalf, and you shall know that I am the Lord. We must always remember that the Lord's chief end is very similar to our chief end. Right? The Lord's chief end is not to glorify man and enjoy us forever. It is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Consider these words from the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we read this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, we know something. You've been here with us. We know that on Mount Sinai, the Lord had said, I'm actually no longer going to focus on Israel as a nation as a whole. I am going to focus on the remnant within Israel. But that being said, in the eyes of the nations, the Lord God is still identified with the nation of Israel. That means when the nation of Israel gets defeated in battle, it's as though God's name is being dragged through the mud. And when God steps in and delivers them, that vindicates the Lord's holy name in spite of the rebellion of his people. Now, we're going to see this take place later in the chapter. Nevertheless, please notice that this is not what the prophet first says. i you, we're going to see that later in the chapter. The Lord is going to vindicate his holiness before the nations, at least before the Syrians and 32 others that are aligned with them, He's going to vindicate the holiness of his name. But that is not what the Lord says first. In verse 13, the Lord tells Ahab, one of the reasons why he is going to deliver Israel from the Syrians, it is so that you shall know that I am the Lord. Here's the thing. That expression, you shall know, is in the singular in the Hebrew. It's not so that some of the people in Israel will know. It's not so that Israel as a whole will know. The Lord is saying, I'm going to do this so you, Ahab, you who are the worst king in all of history among my people, I am doing this so that you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, we're going to need to wait until next week to see how this battle unfolds. But we have already seen that the Lord is a God of sovereign grace who will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and who will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. But we are also beginning to see this, that this God of sovereign grace is gracious beyond our wildest imaginations. Praise be to God. Amen.